Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 250 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Elizabeth Hand. She's the author of fantasy and science fiction novels such as Waking the Moon, Mortal Love, and Illyria, as well as the Cast Neary series of noir detective novels, starting with Generation Loss. Her book reviews have appeared in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Salon, The Village Voice, and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And we'll be speaking with her today about her short story collection, Errantry, and about her new book, Fire, the latest volume in the Outspoken Author series from PM Press. And now, here's our interview with Elizabeth Hand. All right, so we're here with Elizabeth Hand. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so you write in Fire that your fictional town of Kamensic Village was inspired by the real-life town of Katona, which is where I grew up. So- oh, my God. You're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, did you recognize it? <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. I mean, uh, I can mention sp- some specific things, but in particular, the rundown print shop next to the train tracks. I oh, know yeah. exactly what that is. I'm talking yeah. about, sorry, I'm talking about your story, Errantry, uh, yeah. in your most recent short story collection. I have to ask you, is the print shop still there? Uh, it's still there, but it's all boarded up and everything. Okay, yeah, because I was friends with the guy who ran it, and uh, and actually a good friend of mine lived there for a while, so I know it, I know it well. Wow, that's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I was just going to ask you, what, made, what was it about Katona that made you want to use that as a setting in your fiction? I think the one of the major draws was that it had a train station. <laughs> I, I grew up not far away in, in Pound Ridge, and my um, my boyfriend in high school lived in Katona, and through him I got to meet, you know, other people there, other friends, and uh, I was um, cast in a summer theater production there one, one year when I was a teenager. And the fact that there was the train there and you could go down to the city, you know, I, I'd go down to the city as much as I could and either leave from there or Mount Kisco. But I thought that um, Katona just seemed much more, there was something much more romantic about it, which I guess is unfortunately borne out over the fact that it's been sort of terraformed by Martha Stewart hmm. and that in the decades since it was my stomping grounds, it, it used to be more, um, more kind of rural and bucolic. And it had also had a great bar, a great dive bar called Deer Park that was kind of a biker bar that had a great jukebox. And it was just a great, great place to hang out. And, uh, I grew up when the drinking age was 18, so I was able to hang out there legally when I was in high school and, and then for some years thereafter when I'd visit home. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> that that's that's Katona. <laughs> <laughs> and so you would hitchhike from Pound Ridge to Katona? Yeah, I did. I did not get a driver's license until I moved to Maine, um, which was in, I guess I probably got my license in 1989, so I was in my 30s. Uh, but back then it was... Um, it was relatively safe to hitchhike. I never had any issues with hitchhiking. And so I would hitch to get around or, you know, I had friends who drove. And if I was going places closer to home, I would ride a bike. You know, I would ride my bike to New Canaan. Um, there was a bookstore and a good record store in New Canaan and a good thrift shop. So my, my girlfriend, and you know, uh, high school friend and I would ride our bikes over to New Canaan. We got around by bike. Just kind of like that scene in the, the movie, The Ice Storm, 
where Christina Ritchie's character is riding her bike, and, and that was filmed in New Canaan, set in New Canaan too, I think, in the 70s. It was it was actually a lot like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly, when I was growing up, I rode my bike all over the place there. Huh. Wow. Well, we'll have to talk at some point about Katana. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, though, because um, you mentioned Martha Stewart, and she shows up as Marion Levesque, right? That she uh, trademarked the name yes. <laughs> of the town. Yes, yeah. I kind of hated that. I haven't followed up on it to see if she really, if she does still, in fact, have a Katona, or she ever did have a Katona line of, of, of color paint products, but... I just found that deeply, deeply offensive. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, I don't know. It just, uh, it was the whole sort of Disneyfication of, of that part of New York State, which, we, you know, we all romanticize, or I think a lot of us people who are writers or artists or musicians or whatever, a lot of people tend to romanticize their, their childhoods and the places where they grew up. And I, I felt that she really kind of, stomped all over Katona when, when she moved in. Her her place there, her compound, there's, it's just, you know, there's not a twig on the ground or a dead leaf unless it's been put there by by somebody to look picturesque. It was funny because, you know, I went off to, I went to, actually went to college in Maine and then I came back to Katona huh. after, after having, I was in at Colby in Waterville. Hey, and yeah. I came back and I was kind of like, wow, it seems really touristy here. And I don't know if it was always like that when I was growing up and I just never noticed because in of, it was Katona? Katona. In Katona, yeah. Yeah. I th- well, I think it became more touristy. I think, you know, well, there, there was always Caramore was there. So that was a draw if you were into music. And, um, and then there is a museum there now too. I don't think it's affiliated with Caramore, but there is um there is a museum in Katona. I have not been to it, but my um my folks still live in Pound Ridge and my mom has gone to the museum there and uh you know there's a Katona has a lot going for it. it still has you know, still has the diner, still has the Blue Dolphin diner, still has that other diner. Uh I don't know what else it, it it has, but still got the train station, you know, an hour you can be in Grand Central. Well, right. I wanted to ask you about some of these things. So the entire time I was growing up, there's a rock out on Route 35 where people would spray paint graffiti on it. And it was like a town bulletin board. I was wondering if that was how far back th- that goes. Yeah, I remember that. I I was not, that was, yeah, I, I, def, I know exactly the, the place you're talking about. That was not a thing that I ever did. It was something I would just see, you know, if I was in a car driving by it. Um, I think that that probably took off and became more of a big deal for people, you know, writing stuff on it in the, my guess would be the eighties. I don't know when, I don't know when you're, you were living there. I was there, you know, my glory days in Katona were in the seventies and maybe the early eighties. And I think after that, probably by the yeah mid to late eighties was when it sort of, that whole area ended up becoming becoming more of a mecca for second home buyers, whereas in the you know forties and fifties and sixties and into the seventies, it was a place where a lot of artists lived because of the proximity to New York City, and for people who were there were a lot of stage people, a lot of um, theater people lived there because they could get the last train home after the show and get back to, you know, wherever they lived at at a reasonable hour, or they could, you know, drive back, get driven back and get that back there by then. But by the, you know, by the time that I had sort of gone, you know, grown up and gone off on my own, 
it really became much more of a second home place. You know, I would go to visit my parents even now. And the only thing that you see, no, you don't see any kids playing outside. You don't see any dogs. You hear in, in the autumn and spring, you hear leaf blowers and you hear people mowing lawns. In the winter, you hear generators going off, you know, when the power goes out. But you don't see people. I I, I rarely see real human beings um, wandering around or, or free range dogs, which is probably good because everybody drives so fast that, that the dogs, which used to just kind of, you know, wander sleepy dirt roads, you know, the dogs would be roadkill nowadays. <laughs> what, and you mentioned um, Muscanth Mountain. Is that sounds to me like Muscoot? Is that where that came from? Or? Yeah, it did. God, you, Dave, you know, you, you know it all. You have the <laughs> not, you, you have the knowledge. Uh, yeah, that came from the Muscoot, which uh, I think is still around, right? That's oh yeah, still, I go I go hiking there all the time. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and the Muscoot restaurant, which was this great place that that back then was kind of wasn't exactly a dive, but it was. Um, it was kind of, it was a roadhouse. And now I think it's more of a real restaurant. But back then it was a roadhouse and uh, it was open late. You know, I, I know, I, I I think all places in New York, you know, the bars and things wouldn't close till what, 4 a.m. So you could go to the, the Muscoot and get a pizza and beer and pretty much they would serve up until closing time. So that was kind of like almost like an after hours place. But yeah, that's, I definitely ripped off Muscanth from, from Muscoot. <laughs> I was also just curious if you do you know about the Leatherman's Cave? That seems like something you might. I do. I yeah. do know. I know. I do know about the Leatherman's Cave. As a matter of fact, across from where I grew up, I grew up on a, a small road in Pound Ridge, and uh, there was um, an elderly couple who owned I don't know what twenty five or thirty acres across from us, and uh, we knew them. We you know became friends with them certainly the woman her husband her husband died at the age of 101 and he was the oldest the oldest living member of actors equity when he died and she was in her 80s and she uh told me that or she told us that um there was a cave on that property that had been a place where the leatherman stayed and i looked for it often over the years and i i don't i i was always looking for like a real cave like, you know, Tom Sawyer's spooky cave, but mm -hmm. it was, I think it was more like an overhang where the leather man went, but yeah, no, the leather man went, went right through there. He went through that whole area. So, um, boy, you know it all. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this, the way I always heard this story was that he was this British guy who lost his family fortune and kind of came to the U S in shame and wore this leather outfit that was really heavy and uncomfortable and just walked these trails as penance and slept in this cave. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's the legend I heard. The, the, I think that the, the true, the truth is that he was, I think that he was French Canadian and, um, did not speak English very well. There's a book about him, um, that I, I don't think I have it here. I think my folks have it in Pound Ridge. But if you Google him, there's been some stuff written about him, you know, relatively recently. And I, I think that, yeah, I think that he was um, French-Canadian or French. He definitely wore the, the leather clothes because there's a photograph of him uh, in the book. I think it's the cover of the book. And I think there might be another 
one or two photos inside and you see him and he, you know, I had always thought the Leatherman wearing sort of like furs, things like that. Maybe, I don't know, Davy Crockett hat. Um, and he does have kind of a Davy Crockett hat, but it looks like, re- you know, it looks like heavy, um, looks more like heavy tanned cowhide, very stiff and bulky leather. I mean, it looked really, really uncomfortable. Um, and he might have been a tinker, you know, he might have been a, a tinsmith who traveled around. Um, and that's how he, you know, got by. He would repair uh, pots and pans and things. But I, I can't remember. There's a lot of a lot of mythology all bound up with the leather man. That whole area, there was always it, it always just seemed like such a great sort of haunted ground, that part of the Hudson Valley. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll say for listeners that the thing that people can never believe never believe me when I tell them about Katona is that New York City needed to build a dam and so they actually flooded the original site oh, of yeah. Katona and the rich people all had their houses dragged up the hill by teams of horses. Um, and you can actually I, I've never done it, but you can go scuba diving in the reservoir and uh yeah. check out the the foundations of old Katona. Yeah, yeah. That was I remember when I learned that uh, when I was in high school, I was like, oh, my God, what an incredible story. There, and I've seen photographs, too, of them moving the uh, moving the, high, the houses to higher ground before they flooded it, before it all, you know, went underwater. That was the other thing about this, that, about Katona that I thought was really kind of haunting. It was like one of these one of these drowned places like, you know, Lavandis or or. East or Atlantis, hmm. this, this, you know, the city under the reservoir. Hmm. Right. And so I wanted to just start out talking about Katona because the sense of place is just so powerful in your writing. I'll say in particular, um, these, these first two stories in Errantry, The Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon and Near Zenner. Uh, I mean, you're just there. You're just there in those places reading those stories. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I when I write, I tend to start with a place. I tend to start with landscape, um, or in the case of the Bellerophon story, with a place I know very well, which was the the National Air and Space Museum in D.C. So I don't necessarily start with a a plot, <laughs> which can sometimes be very apparent in my work, but um, but I do start with landscape and then. People tend to come and inhabit it, and then the story rises out of that. And it's funny with with both of those stories; they each one of those grew out of a very specific place. But there are also two stories that the titles came to me years before the stories did. I had, I mean, decades ago, the Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon came to me as a title for a story that I knew I would write someday that was going to be set at NASM at the National Air and Space Museum. And uh, it hung around in the back of my mind for, I don't know, 20 years, maybe 15 years. And Near Zenner was, um, was another story that another title that came to me. I've spent a lot of time. I, I live part of the year in the UK in London, and I've spent a lot of time in West Penwith, which is the, the furthermost tip of Cornwall, which is if you look at a, a map of the UK, that little boot, you know, the toe that pokes out, you know, to the west into the Atlantic Ocean, the tip of that is Penwith. It's it's Land's End, 
And Zenner is um, a town there, an area there that I've spent a lot of time. And it's a very beautiful, again, kind of a haunting, strange place. And um, uh, the um, the cottage, the place where my partner and I would stay when we'd go there was near Zenner. So it was in a place called Treen, which was about half a dozen houses, makes what makes up uh, Treen. And so we were always staying near Zenner when people asked where we were and I thought, Oh, near Zenner, that's another good title. So mm-hmm. that, that floated around for about 10 years before, um, before the story came to me. Well, right. And so, so for people who haven't read this story, it's, it's kind of on these moors, these really barren sort of spooky moors and the, just the level of detail is just very impressive to me. I mean, I can't even imagine, honestly, knowing the names of all those plants and things. Are you? <laughs> do you collect a lot of like nature guides and things like that, or do you just know all those plants? Or <laughs> no, I do collect all those guides. Yeah, I, th- that's like a. Um, I don't know. That's sort of a trick I learned years ago when I, you know, thirty years ago when I started writing professionally. That it was really useful to know. Um, to know the proper names or the Latin names or the, even the local names, folk names of, of plants and animals and things like that. I, I, growing up, I was a big animal lover. So, you know, knowing about, uh, wildlife, animals, insects, things like that. Um, that's something that I've sort of, uh, you know, incorporated, um, since childhood into my, you know, store of, of useless knowledge. But plants, that was something that um, I think I learned from my my former partner, Richard Grant, who's a very um, wonderful writer, uh, who is also a gardener and um, knows a lot about plants and things. And so he, uh, uh, years ago, you know, he knew a lot about plants. And so I sort of picked up from him like, oh, this would be something else that it would be good to know about. So um so yeah, I I don't know that stuff when I'm writing a story or a novel set somewhere. I will um you know buy a book, a guide, a nature guide, a wildlife guide, a plant guide. Um and when I'm in the UK or when in the US as well, I frequent used bookstores, the dwindling number of used bookstores that exist. And um I'm always looking for obscure nature guides, you know, ones that are out of date or, you know, you can find, especially in, in the UK, I don't know, maybe it's the case here too. You can find these old nature guides that are just, you know, it's like the flora and fauna of Katona, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, somebody will write a book, a little book or pamphlet about all the obscure plants, especially in birds, maybe, and sometimes, you know, butterflies that exist in their own little tiny corner of the world. So whenever I find a book like that, I'll grab it. You can find, you know, you can usually get them for for nothing, for, you know, almost for maybe a buck or, or a quid or something. And then I'll just tuck them away and, and hope that maybe someday um I'll have a chance to write a story about that place or, or sometimes there are places that I, I already know. And, and so then I'm adding that to the shelf of books that I have that are about a specific place. Right. And so all those years then that, uh, the near Zenor title was rattling around in your head, did you know it was going to be a, a spooky story or did that develop at some point? Um, well, so many of my stories are spooky stories that I, and that is a very spooky place. It's a very beautiful place, but it's also very eerie, especially to, you know, to an American, to somebody from away. Uh, 
seeing those ancient, ancient monuments and the moors and just such a beautiful, barren place that, you know, conversely has been inhabited by humans for thousands and thousands of years. So I, I always had a sense that it would be a creepy story, but I did not, in fact, know what the story would be about until, um, you know, I started writing it shortly before I started writing it. Right. I really liked, I don't know if you saw Amy Bender's review of it, but she says that you're able to capture a nightmarish feeling without ever touching anything we know is truly frightening. And that was certainly my experience. I mean, it's one of the scariest stories I've read in years, but there's nothing really overtly threatening even in the story. It's just creepy. Well, thank you. I I, I, th- I think things that are truly frightening um, are things that we cannot put our hands on. You know, I um, and I, I, I love I've written, you know, I, I, I like affect horror. I, I like things that are more visceral. I, I probably like reading them less than I sometimes have enjoyed writing them. But I think, um, you know, it, it is a challenge for me to try to write a story that will really unnerve somebody and not kind of go for the cheap stuff which isn't to say i'm not above going for the <laughs> cheap stuff you know like like uh stephen king says in dance macabre he says you know i'm not that he kind of goes to the different levels of of the story of terror the supernatural and he ends by saying but i'm not afraid to go for the gross out if, if that's what the story needs so I'm, I'm not afraid for going for something graphic or extreme but i especially in you know the last, the latter part of my career, I, I try not to rely on that so much. I, I find it more interesting to try to do something more subtle. There's, there's a wonderful British writer, uh, English writer named Robert Aikman, who was, uh, famous, is famous for having written stories that are extremely disturbing, extremely frightening and unnerving. And you read these stories and at the end of them, you sit there and you go, what the hell was that even about? I mean, seriously, you re- you read some of these stories and you think, what happened there? It, and you can go back and reread it. It's like, okay, he goes out, he gets in his car, he does this. But you don't really understand, or I don't really understand, and other people too, you know, he, he's, he's a noted for this. He, he is, he, creates this profound sense of unease and dis-ease. Um, and he does it, you know, all without, you know, without ever shedding a drop of blood. <laughs> he, it's really, he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. And so with Nir Zenner, I really, I did set out to write an Aikman-esque story. I wanted to write, um, that kind of a story. And, and I, I feel like I succeeded. I, I feel like I was, you know, sometimes I write stories and I'm like, ah, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't do it. You know, I set out to do something and it was an ambitious failure or it was a, you know, or it was just a failure. <laughs> it just <laughs> didn't work for whatever reason. But Near Zenner was one of those stories that I finished it and I was like, no, I did it. I, I nailed it with that one for what it wanted to be. You know, I wanted it to be, uh, Aikman-esque. I wanted it to have that sort of unease. And I, I felt like I, I achieved that. 
So thank you. I'm, I'm glad it scared you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw, I forget which review it was, but the reviewer says, uh, a friend called me in the middle of reading this book, and I answered the phone and said, hello? And she said, <laughs> why are you whispering? And she's like, because I'm reading Elizabeth Ann's book, and it's freaking me out. <laughs> I love it when that happens. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I remember that review. I think that was in the, the Minneapolis paper. <laughs> you know, those people in Minneapolis, they get, you know, it's cold and dark. They're, they're easy to scare. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you say in, in this other book, Fire, you say that you had one unexplained event in your life and that Near Zenner was kind of inspired by that? Yes. Yeah, that's true. The, um, this, the sort of story within a story in Near Zenner about the three, um, the three young teenage girls who have this inexplicable uh, witness something inexplicable. Um, I won't go into it. If people want to, they can read the story, but, um, uh, but that actually did happen to me. And, and as a matter of fact, it happened on March 12th. And um, of the three friends, I'm still in touch with, with one of them. I'm still close to one of them. And every year or almost every year we call each other on March 12th. And, and she called me on March 12th. She lives on the West coast and, uh, and, and we didn't talk about it, but we just sort of, um, we, we observe it, you know, we, we both remember it. It was, it was something that happened. I, uh, you know, one of these days I might try to track down the, the other girl and see, um, you know, see if her memory jives with the memory of the other, the other two of us who, who we do remember the exact same thing. It was, you know, it was, it was, um, it happened. I, I don't know what it was, but, uh, you know, um, it, it was in an, the area where it happened. This was not something I was really conscious of till I was older when my friend, um, Janine, who was the girl who I'm still close to, um, uh, it was by her house where she lived at the time and it adjoined the Mianus river gorge, which you may know if, if you know that area. And I found out, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago that the Mianus river gorge is one of the very few places, uh, left in the Northeast that actually still has first growth forest. Um, which I never knew at the time, you know, I never knew when we would go in there hiking or, or wandering around or whatever, but apparently it's one of the few places, um, you know, where there are trees there, there's areas of it that remain unchanged from back when the indigenous people, you know, were there before there were any white people, you know, uh, so, so maybe that had something to do with it. It was a, it was a, it was a spooky experience. I also wanted to ask you in that story, the setup kind of is that there's a widower and after his wife's death, he comes across some letters that she had written to a children's fantasy author who later was charged with being a pedophile. And I was just curious if that is that based on experiences you've had in the field or. No, no, not at all. There there was. um a very, you know, kind of a tragic incident, um, with, uh, a, a well-known, um, writer in, in the UK who was late in his life when he was in his eighties, there were charges that he had, um, uh, sexually assaulted teenage, young teenage girls when, uh, this was going back to maybe the seventies or the eighties. Um, it was real, and it was a very sad case. It, you know, it was somebody who, whose work I loved, 
You know, I, I didn't grow up reading it, but I read some of his uh, children's book to my son when he was growing up. And then this happened, I don't know, maybe within the last 10 years or so. And uh, it was a very sad story. It, it, it destroyed his career. It obviously, um, you know, destroyed the lives of some of these young women who were now my age. Um, or if they it didn't destroy them, it certainly um, affected them. So it, it was very sad. And um, I kind of, you know, I wanted to riff off of both the tragic elements of that and, and the sense of, you know, damage sustained by um by the girls in real life who had trusted this um writer whose works they loved a writer who they idolized um that betrayal of their trust and then also you know the poignance of somebody who had built this much beloved body of work that um was i think essentially you know pulled from the shelves um I don't know, you know, if his reputation, his literary reputation, if it's been reinstated at all, his his personal reputation, I, I think, you know, I'm sure has not. So anyway, I, w- I wanted to, um, that that was sort of a way of um, of making use of this other um, material, this the the experience that I'd had with my own friends when we were young. We, we were not, you know, I never, fortunately, had not. Uh, you know, experienced anything like that as, as a young girl, um, any kind of abuse. And uh, as far as I know, my friends had not either. So. I guess I asked because, you know, I um, I was reading your Twitter and you linked to an essay by Bonnie Nasdem. Um, oh, yeah. Great, great piece. Yeah. And I actually, I you know, I was in her, um, I was in a creative writing class with her at USC. Oh, she's, interesting. She's talking about that in the article. But I guess so. I was just wondering, since you linked to it, if... Um, you know, if, if you would, how widespread that kind of, those sort of issues that she talks about, you think are? That, you know, I, I can't answer that just because I, I, I know from reading that article that, and I'm sure, you know, from people I know who I've heard, you know, mention over the years, somebody, I don't know, some, some writer getting overly friendly at a, at a drinks party or something, but I have never encountered anything like that. Um, Fortunately, um, I, I, you know, I don't know whether, it, I mean, certainly now I'm older. <laughs> so, uh, and, but I, you know, I know that it goes on. I mean, it must, you know, I'm sure it goes on. I'm, I'm wish I could say that I'm shocked to have read her piece. And I mean, I was shocked in a way to think that something like this, I guess I would like to believe that that's the sort of thing that that stopped happening in the seventies, you know, when, when Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow and all those dinosaurs were stomping around, but I guess it has not. So, and, and, but I think that was a, a very important piece that she wrote and I was really glad to see it getting a lot of play and, and seeing a lot of responses to it, um, from, you know, other, women writers who, um, whether or not they had experienced this kind of standing, standing up to talk about it. And it's something, you know, I wanted, I put out there because I, I teach at an MFA program and I'm, you know, try to be very conscious of the fact that this, you know, we're, we're entrusted with, with mentoring people, um, you know, not all of them young people at different stages in their life. And it's a very, 
I, you know, this might sound hokey, but I, I seriously think that this is a, a sacred thing, you know, uh, that we're embarking upon to create art. I, I take it seriously. And I, you know, whatever my failings are, and I'm sure there are many, I, I try to, um, you know, always be respectful of, of what other people are trying to do with their work, especially when you're engaged in, in a, um, you know, a mentor, mentee, or a student teacher relationship. Uh, so, um, anyway, I was, I was, you know, it was a troubling piece, but I, I thought it was very brave of her to write it. And, uh, I was almost sorry that, um, you know, in some of the responses to it, that people weren't being called out by name, but I, I don't know that that would be, I, I don't know what that would accomplish, but, um, I hope that if nothing else, having her, essay and, and some of the follow-up essays that other people wrote, having people read them, it, it makes it, you know, um, opens up the conversation so that people are, who might not have been aware of it are more aware of it. And, and people who are already more aware of it might not feel um, threatened uh, to, to speak up about whatever they've had, whatever they've experienced. Right. And so for listeners, this article, it's called Experts in the Field, and it's on tinhouse.com if you want to look it up. Um as Elizabeth is saying, I think it's really important. Um, I also wanted to ask you about this this other book, Fire. On the cover, it says that the title story is based on your real life experience as a participant in a government climate change think tank. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear more about that. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, somebody I know um, uh, who summers here in Maine is a futurist, Bob Olson, Robert Olson. He's a futurist at a DC think tank, and. They um, did, were doing a study for the natu- uh, National Forest Service on the future of firefighting. And they had a number of, you know, scientists and, and bureaucrats and people who were uh, much more informed about firefighting than I am. But um, Bob had read my work, my, you know, my, uh, my work is all over the place and I, but I have written some science fiction novels and, and stories that deal with environmental issues, especially with climate change, which is something I, you know, was writing about 20 years ago. And, um, so he said, Hey, you know, we're doing this. Would you be interested in being part of it? Because even though you don't know about this, you're, you are a futurist, you know, in your fiction and, I said, well, I know nothing about firefighting. He said, that's okay. We're going to give you all the material that you'll need to read. So I got a raft of material that um, all of the participants were given and read it. And it was, it was really fascinating. And it was really frightening too, um, especially for, um, you know, for reading about um, people on the West coast and, uh, places like Colorado and Arizona, the, the area where we've seen these mega fires and, and wildfires in the last few years. Um, and essentially, you know, we're, we're not looking at if, we're not looking at if a mega fire is going to happen and overtake a, a major urban area or a major residential area. It's a matter of when, and we are not at all prepared for it. So, um, but, um, but the study, you know, was, was trying to come up with different, um, possible applications and, 
and mostly I, I, what I brought to the table was, you know, um, I'm engaged in, I live in a very small town in Maine and have been engaged in the past in sort of grassroots, um, you know, projects within the community. And I think that that's really, um, I think that really is the future of, uh, things like firefighting and, and, you know, dealing with climate change is that on a, on a small community grassroots level, individual towns and communities getting together and learning how to fend for themselves and how best to anticipate any, um, issues that will arise at some point because we are not going to be able to depend on, um, the government to help us. There's not going to be the funding, the federal funding or the state funding to, you know, come to the rescue and save everybody. So we're going to have to learn a certain level of resilience um, and a certain level of preparedness without, you know, necessarily uh, becoming preppers. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I, you know, I, 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 I don't do that, but I, I did with Y2K. I was ready. <laughs> <laughs> so I will do it again someday. Um, so I, I think, you know, not necessarily sitting around and being alarmist, um, but uh, being intelligent and looking at one's community, especially if, if you live in a vulnerable place like Colorado or, or like, you know, the Pacific Northwest or California and becoming engaged on a community level, you know, in your school, in your, um, you know, if you have a town hall, uh, try to educate people in, in how to uh, build and plant um, so that you make your home, your homestead, your acreage, whatever you have, more fire resistant. And the people who know all that stuff are just, uh, you know, the scientists and people I worked with are just, you know, so much smarter than me. <laughs> and uh, that the amount of knowledge and experience that they bring to the table, it's, you know, these are the good guys who are working for us and, you know, good gals, the good people. And, and these are the ones, um, whose jobs, uh, you know, are being impacted or will be impacted by changes in, in the current administration. And we, you know, people don't necessarily see that the trickle down could, you know, affect whether your house burns down, um, so, or you're, you know, the forest that adjoins it. So it, it's, um, people should be mindful of that and, um, and people should educate themselves about it. Well, I thought it was striking in the book, as you say that, you know, you mentioned that you've written dystopian or post-apocalyptic fiction in the past, but you say that, um, my taste for reading and writing that has diminished radically as I've seen our own world surpass the darkest visions that I or anyone else could come up with. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I write, um, most of, um, not most, but a lot of my writing energy these days goes into a series of psych psychological thrillers, n noir novels that are themselves extremely dystopic. So, um, uh, and they are sort of set against this unfolding apocalyptic landscape, which is our own world. It's not, you know, a secondary world or a science fictional world. It's, the world we live in now. So I definitely am still writing that kind of fiction, but, um, I did find that I, I just no longer felt the compulsion 
to write it so much in science fiction, you know, um, I, I enjoy reading it when I find work that that's, you know, well-written and, and unusual and striking. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I, um, I don't feel like I, I, I'm writing anything nostalgic, but at all by any means, but, uh, my friend Bob Olson, the futurist who I just mentioned, he, he, um, he had read a novel of mine called Glimmering, which is an extremely dark, um, dystopic novel that, uh, came out in 1997 and, you know, opens with things like, um, jihadi terrorists flying an airliner into a lower Manhattan landmark. I mean, it was a book that I channeled a lot of my anxiety about the future into it. And then, 20 years, you know, 20 uh, years later, I found myself living in that future. But anyway, Bob Olson read that book, but he called me on it and he said, you know, this is such a dark novel and the ending is so dark and there's no hope in it at all. Um, you know, don't you feel like you have some sort of responsibility as a writer to present a more, not necessarily, an op- you know, not an optimistic Pollyanna-ish, Pollyanna-ish vision, but something more hopeful for people to, um, you know, as a takeaway, with people to have as a takeaway. And actually, probably I don't know that I can write that kind of book. So, so maybe I will, you know, leave that to other writers, you know, other speculative writers who could maybe come up with things that might have, uh, you know, more of an element of optimism in them. Cause I think that's important. You know, I, I think especially, uh, especially these days, I, I think we need to have, um, you know, either a, a kind of a pragma- pragmatic optimism about what we can do. I, I have two kids, you know, in their mid twenties and my son, uh, son's job is within the environmental sector and he's, you know, he's very upbeat about things. So, um, so I think that's good. I, th- I think that it's really important for young people and, and, you know, older people too, to not focus, uh, exclusively on terrible things, even, you know, cause they're all out there and we know they're there. Well, well, right. Cause I mean, one thing that I find sort of discouraging is that, as you say, none of these bad things that have happened either environmentally or politically are unexpected, right? They're all things that writers have been trying to warn people about for decades and decades, um, apparently without success. And I just wonder, um, you know, could writers have done anything more or did writers do everything they could to (laughs) warn people? Blame the writers. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, sure, people can always do more. Um, But I don't, you know, I don't think that they're, uh, I I think that... um, Certainly in science fiction, I think that there are a lot of science fiction writers who are very prescient in writing about various um, climatological or ecological disasters and, and or scenarios. I mean, you know, going back to the 70s, I mean, go, you know, going back to John Wyndham and the day of the Triffid. I mean, you know, there was a whole strain of ecological science fiction in the 1970s. Um, and very, you know, and also very politically astute science fiction, you know, Ursula Le Guin's work, many, many people. I, so I think that they, I think science fiction writers have done a lot to popularize, um, and are still doing a lot to pop, popularize, um, 
you know, notions of change for good or for bad that, oh, this, you know, this is the way the world ends like this, or hey, it ends like this, or it ends like this. You know, there's a lot of ways the world ends. Um, but, you know, unless the world just completely disappears, like in case we're just like hit by an asteroid and incinerated, it's it's not going to end. Th- things will end. You know, nature as we know it will end. Species will become extinct. But people will, you know probably survive for a while. I mean, maybe they won't want to. Maybe they won't want to have survived um, in a severely diminished world, you know, in a world without polar bears or whales or, you know, certain kinds of mice or insects. But I I, I think that, um, you know, we're in, who is it who coined the term that is it the slow apocalypse? I mean, that's what we're living in. You know, the, the apocalypse has really already happened and we're, we're living in the aftermath and, and we're here. We're adapting to it. You know, humans, Homo sapiens is a very adaptive species to the peril of all of the other species that we, that surround us. So, um, anyway, I, I, I've lost my train of thought, but, um, but I do think that, that, Science fiction writers, speculative writers are, are, have done, are continuing to do their part to sort of, you know, uh, ring the warning bell about what's happening to our environment. All right. So let me lighten things up a bit with my next question here. You mentioned in um, Fire, I think, that you tend to pattern all of your characters after real people you know. And there's this one character in there where uh, it's, it's a character in, um, the Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon, where he has kind of like an, a public access science fiction show. Uh, <laughs> it's called uh, Captain Marvo's Secret Space Time. And I was just wondering if there, if you actually do know somebody who has a public access <laughs> science fiction show. No, that's the only guy I've ever made up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the only one I ever made up, but I did make him up. I kind of, I, I was sort of, um, I was inspired by the guys who did Mystery Science Theater 3000 which is like one of my favorite shows. So I just always thought it would be really cool to have a public access science fiction TV show. <laughs> so the guy, Captain Marvo, that's, that's what he gets to do. You saw the Mystery Science Theater 3000 is coming back. <gasps> they just released a trailer for it. No. What, as a show or as a movie or? As a TV show, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. What, but what's left? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We have like entire new things that they can, they can make fun of. Oh, that's great news. That, that's, that. See, now there's something to live for. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, like speaking of that, I mean, so, uh, I was also really struck by this line in Fire where you, you're talking about when you were in college, I guess, and you said to yourself, 20 years from now, what will matter? That you did well in this test or that you saw Amricord? <laughs> and that you chose basically to uh, collect enriching experiences rather than necessarily study. And <laughs> That's a wondering. nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> do you? How do you feel about that now? Do you feel like you you would do it all over again, or maybe you would have studied more? Or? Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I would definitely do it all over again. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I you know, it was. It was difficult for my parents, and I felt bad, 
to because I had always, I mean, and I did go back and get a college degree. I got a Bachelor of Science in, in Cultural Anthropology because, like, going to college had been something instilled in me since infancy. So I knew I wanted to go to college. You know, I wanted to go to Oxford. I, I really, I, I was a geek. But then when I got to college, I found, like, there was all this other stuff going on that, like, was, had not been going on back in, you know, Katona. So, um, yeah, so no, I, I don't regret it at all. And um, I'm happy I went, I'm glad I went back to get my, you know, degree. I'm really glad that I finished my degree. Because uh, that was important to me. And I and when I went back to school, I loved it. But you know, I was, uh, I, I was, um, I was really smart, but I was, you know, I was lazy. And, and I didn't, uh, I don't know, I, I didn't see the point of a lot of you know, a lot of the stuff that I you had to do to get a degree. And I was in a BFA program for, for playwriting. So I was taking a lot of classes that, you know, should have been fun classes. And a lot of them were. But, you know, I basically just wanted to be writing. And um, I didn't see the school for those first three years before I, you know, dropped out and got booted out. That That school was really helping me to write. Whereas this other stuff, I figured was at least giving me stuff to write about. So, um, and it was a really, you know, it was a really exciting time to be young. I mean, every time's an exciting time to be young, but it was, it was the, the 1970s. I was shuttling back and forth between DC and New York city, you know, the punk scene, it just sort of, you know, blossomed overnight like this, you know, poisonous fungus. It was wonderful, kind of glowing in the dark and, there was all this music and, you know, DC had these fabulous museums and there was, I don't know how many movie theaters. So I was just constantly going to, you know, to see foreign film and to see new movies that were coming out and, you know, taxi driver, all this great stuff. There was so much going on. Um, and really, you know, you come down to it that or studying for, I don't know, a, a, an exam on Boethius. Even though I actually liked The Consolation of Philosophy, it was one of the books that I read and I understood. But having to take all of that, that stuff that I, you know, I see now and I value and prize now as an important part of a liberal arts education. When I was 18, it didn't look like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I, I have no regrets. Well, so you mentioned that you have kids. Did you encourage them to <laughs> blow off their classes or was it a no. do as I say, not as I do? Kind oh, of yeah. Thing? It was definitely do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, you know, I, because I knew what I had done, I was like, I, it was very important for me and I think for them too, to, to go to college. And, and I'm a writer. I don't, you know, my parents were not, well, you know, they were, they were, uh, very comfortably off, but they had five children to put through college, you know. So after three years, when I, when I dropped out, flunked out, they were like, you're on your own, kid. And so when I eventually went back to school and ended up having to, you know, take out student loans and pay all this money to complete my degree. And then I was like, God, now, now I get it. You know, now I get why my parents were so upset. And now I, you know, it, it, I sweated, but I was working full time at the Smithsonian and go, you know, going to school and mostly taking graduate level classes because those were the only ones offered, you know, at a time when I could get off from work to take classes. 
So having gone through that and being a, you know, a full-time writer and not having a lot of money, uh, I knew my kids were going to have to, you know, be able to get good financial aid, scholarships, you know, and I contributed what I could and I did, but it would, you know, I definitely rode them to, you know, do well in high school and get into college. And they did. And I mean, you know, they had their bumps on the way. They, they, they were, you know, they're my kids. <laughs> um, but they're both really smart. And, and, you know, my daughter's a teacher now in Hawaii and, and, uh, you know, my son, as I said, works in the environmental sector. So, you know, they, uh, I don't think they're sorry that they went to college, but they did. I know there was a time when my, my daughter was in high school and, uh, she had a friend who was not from Maine, was from, uh, I guess from the West Coast. And he was visiting and, uh, and she said, I forget the kid's name, whatever his name was. She's like, Johnny Googled you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh oh, this is a. She was like, and I was reading interviews with you because, of course, you know, my kids as teenagers had absolutely no interest in their mother whatsoever. Why should they? You know, they didn't care what I did when I was young or old. You know, they had no interest in me at all. And then all of a sudden, here was somebody who was like, look at this about your mom. <laughs> It's like, look at this about this book. Have you read this book? And so the cat was out of the bag. I'll, I'll put it that way <laughs> to, you know, for, for the G rated audience. But um, yeah, so after that, I was like, yeah, well, you know, when you're older, you might want to read those books after, after you graduate from college. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but they, they have read them. They have read my work now. So, and, and, they're great. They're, they're proud of me. They, they like the books. You know, there's other writers they like better. So that's, <laughs> how, that's as it should be. I mean, so do you think if you had stayed more on the straight and narrow path that you're writing today would be completely different? Or would it be, are there some sort of fundamental aspects of yourself that you think would always come through no matter what sort of life experiences you had? If I'd stayed on the straight and narrow path, I don't know that I would have become a writer. I don't know that right. Do writers have a straight and narrow path? I, I don't know that that exists. I mean, maybe it does now for writers. I mean, people, I guess, you know, people go, you, I mean, you, it sounds like you have an MFA. I, I guess people can go through school and, and, you know, get a degree, an undergraduate degree and whatever, and then get an MFA. I mean, not just for writing, but for all of the arts, you know, you get on a track like that, but I, I never had any interest in that. You know, I mean, like I said, I was saying, I barely had interest in, in undergraduate work. And, and I was in a in a really, you know, well-known BFA program for theater. And I, I couldn't muster the, the you know, the discipline. Yeah, you know, the dis I don't know if it was discipline. I'm very disciplined as a writer. But um, I was not disciplined as a student. So, no, I... I, I think if I had, you know, finished college, I mean, I did, you know, I did finish college and I did have a job. I did have a straight job, but I, I quit it when I realized that if I didn't take a gamble at that point to try to become a writer, that I, I would, that was it. You know, it was the one thing I'd always wanted to do. And I thought, Jesus, if I don't, if I don't try to do this now, I'm, you know, 
that's it. I'm going to, I will have blown it and I'm always going to regret that. So I took a gamble and, and it was really hard, you know, for a long time. I was very, you know, I was very poor. I didn't have a lot of money and, uh, it was tough raising my kids for a while because, you know, I thought, Jesus, my, you know, I took a vow of poverty, but now I'm subjecting my children to this. Um, but I was very fortunate that I was able, you know, to make it work. And I think that's the other thing. I think that's something that people, when you're talking about the straight and narrow as, as opposed to, you know, the primrose path, luck plays a huge part in uh, having any kind of a career in the arts, I think, and writing and music and anything else. And I've been lucky, you know, I mean, I'm not Stephen King, you know, I'm not making a million dollars. I don't have, you know, I I didn't write, uh, you know, Mockingjay and, and those books. I, I haven't, you know, done a lot of things. I have my successes. My success is not measured by worldly standards. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I've been doing this professionally for 30 years and I love it. I, I still get published. I, I you know... I love reading. I love reviewing. I, I love, you know, most of the time I love writing. Um, but I've been very fortunate. And that that's, you know, that's something that I think people don't always factor in. I think people like to, to believe, you know, oh, I worked really hard and I had this talent and I, I, you know, nurtured it and I stuck with it. And it was like, yeah. And, you know, then you were at that cocktail party where you, you know, sat next to George Plimpton and he said, Hey, you know, would you, you know, that didn't actually happen to me, but it's happened to somebody. <laughs> so, you know, you, you get lucky. Somebody, you meet somebody, you meet an editor, you meet an agent. And, you know, I met my agent. That was a huge piece of luck. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, luck, be a lady. Well, and selling your first story, it sounds like was a big piece of luck too, right? To the twilight. Yes. Yeah. That see that was a that was a huge piece of luck. I had I had written a story and called Prince of Flowers. And um, you know, it's not it's but it's not the best thing I ever wrote. It's not the best thing anyone ever wrote, but but it's a it was and is a publishable story. It was a good story. It was a twi you know, it was a good solid Twilight Stone story, kind of a weird tale story. And um I submitted it to Twilight Zone magazine because I, I knew it. I, I was at that time in the only work, writer's workshop I had ever been in. And the instructor there, um, uh, you know, said, Hey, this is, this is a great story. It's, or it's a public, good story. It's a publishable story. So I submitted it to Twilight Zone and I don't know, a month, a month, a year or nine months went by and it was rejected with a form rejection. And I'd collected many form rejections before. So I, I was, you know, not one of these things where I thought like, oh my God, how could they, how could they deign to not take this story? But I thought, well, no, wait a minute. This story actually is a Twilight Zone story. Nobody read this story. And as it turned out, my dear friend, Paul Woodcover, who has also been my sometime collaborator in the years since, Paul was in New York and he was, had gotten a job reading slush for Twilight Zone. So I called him up and I said, Paul, nobody read my story. We, you know, and he's like, Oh, say no more. Send it to me. So we sent it. To, I sent it to him and he went to the then editor of Twilight Zone and he said, this story came in 
in the slush pile, and I think it's great, and you should read it. And the editor read it and said, oh, my God, this is a great story. I'm going to buy it immediately. And he sent me this very nice letter saying, this is a wonderful story. We're going to feature it in, as the first of these you know, special feature that we're doing, first-time stories by a previously unpublished writer, and it's you. And anyway, it was this wonderful thing. But the fact of the matter is, he had already rejected that story, <laughs> which I pointed out to him when I talked to him on the phone. Um, so anyway, uh, more likely he had never read it, you know, or he had just like glanced at the first page and thought Meh, and tossed it. And that was it. Or somebody else in the slush piles had that reaction. So that was totally luck. If that hadn't happened, you know, I would be a miserable old crone. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, who knows what would have happened, but it did happen, but it was luck. I, and I had nothing to do with it. You know, my friend Paul had everything to do with it and the editor had a lot to do with it. Right. So, so, I mean, that seems really lucky. And then I also read your piece on Salon. It's called Saved by Obamacare, which also seems lucky that as well. Yeah, that, that was fortunate. Yeah, that was, you know, I, I, uh, had, uh, um, you know, was miserably underinsured for many years because I, you know, wanted to make sure my kids had insurance and spent a, a fortune, you know, I don't know, $70,000 or something on insurance that was basically just going down the toilet. And then when the Affordable Care Act um, came around, I immediately signed on and the almost the first thing I did was get a colonoscopy um, I was at the time, I think 57, you're supposed to get one after you're 50. I couldn't afford one. It was like, I don't know, $5,000, $7,000 or something. So I'd gone without one and I got one and the doctor came back and said, you know what? It's really good that you got this. You're fine. I've, you know, taken care of everything. But if you hadn't done this, you would probably, no, you would not probably, if I had not done this, you would have developed um, colon cancer probably within a year. And uh, it probably would have progressed very quickly. Um, so if I had not been able to afford health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, that was two years ago. Right now, I might be not talking to you on Skype. You know, I might be, I don't know what I would be doing because I wouldn't have been able to afford treatment for colon cancer. So anyway, um, so I'm, that's another cause that I'm very, um, supportive of, which is, uh, healthcare and, and the Affordable Care Act. And, uh, even as we speak, I gather the, the GOP is, con you know, decided to postpone um, their session for the day. They're, they are attempting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So God only knows what will happen to um, me and a lot of people if that happens. So especially a lot of, you know, freelancers, people like myself who are, um, you know, writers or artists or musicians or, or journalists, um, you know, adjunct teachers. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate how hard the dysfunctional healthcare system in the United States makes it for artists, because you might be a fairly successful artist, but 
unless you're a really, really successful artist, you probably can't buy a good health insurance policy on your own. And, you know, without the Affordable Care Act, I mean, the Affordable Care Act has allowed a lot of my friends to pursue careers in the arts that they would not otherwise have been able to pursue because they would have had to have a day job just for the health insurance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I I don't, um, anyway, that's a, it's a, I think it's an unconscionable thing to do to, to want to repeal it. Um, You know, not just for myself, for, you know, many people, I, I know many people, I have friends, I have neighbors, I know people in Maine, a, a huge number of people in Maine are going to be left without insurance. You know, a, a huge number of older people are going to be left without insurance, you know, people over the age of 60. Um, so, uh, and younger people as well, you know, it's just, it, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Um, but well, we'll just, like I said, we'll see what happens. I'm just curious if you, do you ever meet people who are opposed to Obamacare and you tell them that it saved your life? Do they like, how do you, how does someone even respond to something like that? I do tell people that. And you know, the people, and I don't, um, I'm not a confrontational person and, you know, even though I may seem that way, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm really not. I, I, um, I, uh, am very uncomfortable with that. So when I talk, you know, when I talk to people about it, I just, I, you know, I tell them nicely, well, you know, this is my story and people and people respond nicely too. people, you know, people don't say like, Oh, you deserve to die. You witch. Um, you know, people are like, uh, Oh, well, yeah, I'm really glad. That's good. I'm good for you. But I don't think, I don't know that I change anybody's mind that there are people I know who, um, uh, here in Maine, who I encouraged to um, to uh, sign on with the ACA a few years ago, and 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 they did. You know, people who are, um, you know, people who I know their political views are very different from mine. That they're, you know, that they are, you know, I'm a spoiler alert. I'm a knee jerk liberal, um, and these are people who are not, who are, much, you know, some of them extremely conservative. Uh, and, but they, you know, I, I talked to them and I said, Hey, you know what? I care about you. You don't have any insurance. Like now's your chance. And they got, you know, they signed on to the Affordable Care Act and they have, now they have health insurance and now they are in peril of losing it. So, you know, those are the people who I hope are calling their congressmen, um, you know, here in Maine and in other places or too, the people who, uh, you know, are, uh, more conservative and who might have supported, um, our current, uh, you know, president, but who are going to lose their health care. You know, what's going to happen to them? Right. Well, I mean, you must be at least somewhat of a confrontational person to be featured in the Outspoken Authors series, right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, outspoken is not the same as confrontational. I, you know, I, I'll just, uh, you know, I, I will say what's on my mind, but I try, I try to say it nicely. But yes, I was very, I was very honored and flattered when Terry, um, Terry Bisson asked me to be part of the series because it's a really, it's a great series and it has some amazing, incredible writers in it who, who are very outspoken. I mean, Ursula Le Guin is, you know, in addition to being a very brilliant writer, she just, she carries the flag for so many causes and she is 
not afraid to speak up <laughs> or to be confrontational. Um, Stan Robinson, Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, another one. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a whole um, long list of, of writers who have done this series of books with PM Press. It's really it's a great series, and it, it's um, and it's a cool series too because you know they're sort of little books that you can just sort of pick them up. They're not like nice little. Um, you know, primers or introductions to, you know, they're like a, like an order, a literary hors d'oeuvre. You get an introduction to, you know, the work of Cory Doctorow, uh, or, you know, whomever, many people, many wonderful people. So did you pick the pieces in it or do you and Terry kind of pick them together or how does that work? I think I'm trying to remember. Um, I think, well, we were going for a theme um, you know, it's kind of an environmental theme. Uh, so, uh, Terry wanted to focus on my fiction that dealt with sort of environmental issues or, or also with kind of, um, sort of, uh, dystopic post 9-11, uh, issues. So, um, I wrote the, the title story, Fire, it's original to the book. And then I have a story called The Saffron Gatherers, which, um, is a, a good story that um, did not get uh, as w- widely read as I would have liked because it was an original story to an anthology, to a collection that came out, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago uh, called Saffron and Brimstone, uh, which was a collection of previously published things. And that story, The Saffron Gatherers, was the only original story in that book. And uh, so that's kind of a cool environmental disaster story. Um, quiet environmental disaster story. And so Terry took that one and then he took um, Cronia, which is a very short sort of a kind of a time travel piece, actually inspired by um, Chris Marker's movie La Jetée, which was itself the basis for the movie 12 Monkeys, which I coincidentally did the novelization of. (laughs) Very recursive story, Cronia. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Twelve Monkeys, but but it was inspired by um, by uh, La Jetée. I mean, is there anything any interesting stories involved in writing the Twelve Monkeys novelization? No, except that the uh, uh, Dave and Jan Peoples, the the screenwriters, were wonderful. David did the um, he did the screenplay for Blade Runner, so he was like a god. Hmm. And his wife is is also a marvelous screenwriter. He they also did the screenplay for Unforgiven, which I think they won the, the Oscar for. Yeah, and they were just they were really nice. They were wonderful to work with, you know. And that was the I think that was the only time I really had any kind of, um, you know, I mean, novelizations are not, you know, that that. That it's kind of bottom feeder work. It's fun work, but it's you know you're working off somebody else's story. You weren't hanging out with Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. Or... No, man, I really and I, I that and when I took the job, <laughs> no, I wasn't. Um, but uh, but they were great. They were wonderful to work with. They were really lovely and smart, and they they loved the book. They loved the novelization. It was a really that was a good novelization. I was very that I think out of all the ones I've done, that was the the best one because. They gave me a lot of leeway, you know, that they were not, um, you know, they knew it had nothing. It wasn't that it had nothing to do with their screenplay or their movie, but they knew it was a completely different thing. And and their screenplay, I thought, was better than Terry 
Jillian's movie. So there, I said it. But they had really, they had a beautiful screenplay. And the movie, I felt, was just, you know, kind of, um, it was not as taut or as uh, unnerving as the screenplay was. I thought it was really a brilliant script. So, uh, so I was very, again, then that was very, that was a very fortunate thing. That was a real piece of luck. And the luck was that Terry Bisson knew me and, you know, had met me a couple of times and Terry, you know, called my agent or maybe called, I can't remember if he called me and he said, I think he called my agent. Anyway, he said, Hey, I, I can't do this job. Do you want to do it? And I was like, absolutely. So I did it. So that was a nice thing because for some years I did novelizations and they, you know, they helped pay the bills. It's honest work. It's, you know, it's hack work, but it's good, honest hack work. And, and I, you know, most of the time I really enjoyed it. I stopped doing it after I did the novelization for Catwoman. (laughs) I I can see how that could be the (laughs) Did you ever see the documentary about the making of 12 Monkeys? I did not. Is it good? Uh, Yeah. Well, there's this amazing, because my understanding is that the guys um, who made it were just expecting Tara Gilliam to not be able to get the movie done. And then when he did, they were like, oh, crap. So then they had to follow him for his next movie, which was the Don Quixote movie, which did indeed um, You're right. implode spectacularly. Um, but be- so before that, um, they made this 12 Monkeys documentary. But it's really funny because there's this scene where Tara Gilliam wants a rat to be running in a uh, wheel in the background of the shot. And they can't get the rat to run in the wheel. And they're, they're spending like all day on this. <laughs> And finally, they get to the rats run the wheel, and then they show what this shot looks like in the movie. And it's so far in the background, you you can just barely see it. They have to like draw a box around it to show you what what the what it is. And uh, it's, it's funny. It's funny stuff. Uh, I I love Terry Gilliam stuff. I really do. I think he's a genius. But he he he, you know, he has such a huge vision. It's hard to to you know get that huge vision to fit into you know a, a rectangular screen. I think. Um, so oh, I'll have to watch 12 Monkeys again, and I'll definitely have to watch that documentary. I have not seen that. Yeah. I also want to, speaking of the, the Outspoken Authors book, you also include essays about James Tiptree Jr. and Tom Dish in that. I was just curious why you wanted those pieces in there. Yeah. Well, when I was talking to Terry, you know, about essays and I, you know, they wanted to include some nonfiction and, um, most of my nonfiction is book reviews or, you know, essays about books and I uh, I love Tom Dish's work and Tiptree's work and I knew Tom Dish um several years before he died uh, and I loved him I loved him Tom as a person and I and I loved his work and um uh I mean I grew up reading him from the time I was a kid I was reading his short stories you know and and he just the roaches and the one about the elevator that just keeps going down and you know, and then later stories like the Asian shore. He's just, he, he's such a brilliant writer and just a brilliant, prickly, idiosyncratic, wonderful man. I just, I really loved him. And it was just so, so tragic when he died. He, you know, he, he killed himself. It was just a very sad thing, but I knew him and his partner, Charlie, uh, Naylor, and they were just, they were wonderful people. And, um, anyway, after Tom and Charlie died, uh, predeceased uh, Tom by several years, which I think is definitely one of the things that led to, you know, Tom's um, sort of ongoing to contributed to his depression. But but after Tom died, uh, somebody at Salon got in touch with me. I guess they, they knew that I knew him and they asked me to write 
if I would write a, you know, uh, an appreciation of his work of, and of him. And, and so I did. So that's one of the pieces that's in fire. And, um, Tiptree, uh, James M. Tiptree Jr., which was the pseudonym, is the pseudonym for a woman author named Alice Sheldon. Tiptree was another writer who I read, who I discovered, um, in, uh, I guess probably when I was at college, maybe in, in high school. And I had read Tiptree's work, like everybody else, thinking that he was a man. And in fact, uh, Tiptree was a woman who had a very troubled but fascinating life that was, um, written about in a brilliant, um, biography called The Double Life of Alice Sheldon by Julia Phillips. It was, it won the book, the biography, won the National Book Award when it was published. And, uh, a beautiful book and really sad. I mean, it was one of the few biographies I've ever read, if not the only one that, that it made me cry. She just had such a sad life. I mean, not sad in the sense that she just, you know, sat alone in a room. She had a really fascinating life. She worked for the CIA. As a child, she traveled to Africa on safaris and she just, you know, but she was obviously, um, somebody who today, you know, her, she ident she did not identify as as a straight woman and whether or not she would have um today be transgendered which maybe she would have been or 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 you know she would have come out as being a gay woman or a bisexual woman um she was not able to do any of those things in her lifetime and uh and she channeled a lot of that rage and grief, um, into her fiction, which is, um, some of the most brilliant fiction of, you know, the 20th century. Uh, not, not just science fiction. It's just, it's really brilliant. Her short stories. Uh, and one of them, uh, I think it's called The Last Flight of Dr. Ain. That is actually the story that I believe, um, Terry Gilliam, uh, ripped on or, ripped off for um the ending of 12 monkeys actually was that tip tree story but anyway um i had written a long piece about the book when it came out and so uh for fire we decided that we would use that as one of the other nonfiction pieces in there so anyway two writers that everybody out there should read thomas m dish and, and uh james m tip tree jr alice sheldon you know, I've never read that Tiptree biography. Everyone says it's just the most amazing book they've ever read. And it's an incredible book. It's incredible. And, you know, unfortunately for this show, I don't have time really to read anything unless it's for unless sure. it's preparation for some episodes. So I keep trying to scheme some way that I could do an episode about that book so I could uh, actually read it. Talk to Julia Phillips. Or uh, there's something going on with Tiptree. I don't know. Is there... Has that book been optioned for a movie or something? Anyway, oh, hmm. there might. Be, I think there's something I read in within the last year, something kind of cooking about about Tiptree. So yeah, so that that might be a that might be a way in. Yeah, you should definitely. I know what it's like to not have a lot of free time to read what you want to read, but yeah, it, when when the time comes, it's a great book, really compelling. Really, I mean, it's also really entertaining. She just she had an amazing life. Yeah. I wanted to say, too, about Tom Dish. You know, you mentioned that he was kind of um, cantankerous or something. I forget what word exactly you used. But, you know, when I was a kid, I had read um, Camp Concentration. And then I read his nonfiction book, uh, The Dreams Our Stuff is Made Up, mm. which is a very sort of contrarian take on the science fiction field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Tom Tom was a contrarian person, but you know what? He was a really sweet person. I mean, he was the man who wrote The Brave Little Toaster, which is just this wonderful, charming children's story. And he did, he had that side. He was very, very sweet. He had this very childlike sense of humor. You know, he would call on the phone and and he would just, you know, he he had this contagious laugh. He was somebody, I think, you know, like a lot of people who um, are depressive, who people who are, you know, suffer from serious depression, he wanted to be happy. So there was nothing that he took more joy in than than happiness, than, than being happy, than laughing. And, you know, I can remember when I first met him being very intimidated um, he, you know, he, he and my part, my partner, John Clute, he, uh, John and Tom had met as undergrads at NYU when they were 18 years old. So Tom, uh, John had known Tom for, you know, most of his life. And I, you know, and I was always hearing stories about Tom and John would talk to him and see him in the city and stuff. So when the first time that I met Tom, I was extremely intimidated and he was you know he was an imposing person physically he was a big man you know he was big and tall and you know he had tattoos and um shaved head and uh and it just you know we just hit it off <laughs> he was just this he was this total sweetheart and charlie laner um, charlie charlie um nailer his uh his partner, Charlie, too, I just, I, I just love, you know, I love them both. And Tom, he, he did, he had this real sweetness to him. But he, you know, also, he could be a very cantankerous, you know, contrarian. He would have been a great person to be an outspoken outspe- <laughs> author. He would have been great if they ever did a posthumous volume. He would be a, a wonderful person for that. Yeah, you know, you know, I saw him because he read at the New York Review of Science Fiction reading series. Um, and so I saw him there. And yeah, like you say, I mean, he was obviously just very imposing and uh, had, had just such a presence about him. Um, and then shortly after that, I found out he had ended his life and it was very sad. And I might have been. Was that a, was that a KGB? Where, I, I think I was no, at that. Where was that reading? I was, this, was the one. This one he read alongside Karen Russell at the South Street South Seaport. Street Seaport. Yeah, I was. I think I was there. I mean, oh. I was there. Yes, because I remember they did it at South Street Seaport. I did one of those too, and I was at that one. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's funny. We were in the same room at the same time. <laughs> it's just like Cronia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were in Katona and yeah. South Street Seaport, and it's in the all sorts of connections. This is where in Maine. Don't forget Wow. There's obviously some science fictional explanation. For exactly. All. There's obviously going to have to be a story come out of this. <laughs> um, all right. So, yes, we're pretty much out of time. So I guess um, maybe just to wrap things up here, do you want to talk about what you're up to these days or are you working on anything new? Yeah, I'm working on I'm, – I'm in the last stage of completing the fourth Castaneri novel. These are the um, – the noir novels I mentioned earlier. The first one was Generation Loss and then Available Dark, Hard Light. This one, the fourth one, is called The The Book of Lamps and Banners. So I'm, you know, on the last, maybe a couple of weeks away from finishing that, maybe the last uh, quarter of the book. So I'm sort of holed up 24-7 down that I have a cottage where I work here in Maine. So I'm I'm down there. I'm not off the grid, but I'm off Wi-Fi, so I, you know, have few distractions. 
I'm not there now. Um, <laughs> so I, I go down there and I just kind of been living that book and working on that full time as much as I can for the last six weeks. So, uh, yeah, so that's my, that's my current project. And then when that's done, uh, yeah, some ideas for different things. I would, I really would like to write some, some more short fiction. I, I love writing short fiction, especially novellas and I haven't done too much of it. Um, fire I wrote last year and I wrote, I think another one or two stories. And that was the, the first time I'd written anything short in a while. So, so yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. And I've heard you describe these, um, the generational loss series books as kind of not fantasy really, but sort of fantasy adjacent in a way. Yeah, they're, they're definitely not fantasy. They're, you know, they're, they're noir novels, but if you read, if you've read my other work, you know, people who have read my other work, they're sort of, they're kind of little flickers of um, the fantastic, kind of just at the corner of your eye in the story, you know. Uh, and m I would say 90% of the people who read these books don't pick up on it. And the other 10% who are people who have read my work, you know, who know my other work, and they read it and they're like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Like, it's hmm. like a, it's like a second, you know, it's like a a second story that's kind of simmering along under the surface that like, if you, if you pick up on it, you can kind of follow it. So, um, so that makes it, you know, it, it's fun to write them. It's fun to write them as just straightforward, you know, crime novels, which they are, but then it's also fun to sort of embed these other elements that are in there for, you know, for re the readers who'll pick up on them. So, and it, again, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of a challenge to try to do it without, you know, tipping, tipping the balance that, you know, I know the stuff is there. And if you know where to look, you'll see it. And if you don't, you wouldn't know it exists. So I, I love being able to do that. It's, you know, I love playing those kind of little mind games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what's the, the, the new book called again? It's called The Book of Lamps and Banners, which is the title of, of a real, an actual book that has never um it there is a reference to it in an ancient occult book called the picatrix but the the real in our real world the book of lamps and banners which did exist has never been found but in my novel um a copy of it shows up it's sort of the, the my book is sort of a it's kind of a riff on the maltese falcon so uh, the Book of Lamps and Banners in some ways sort of stands in for the Maltese Falcon. And it, it has, you know, a little bit in common with um, Kiss Me Deadly, too, the, the classic uh, noir film and, and novel, Kiss Me Deadly, uh, which if you haven't seen, that's something you should see. It's a great movie. Yeah, so everyone go check out Kiss Me Deadly and the Book of Lamps and Banners. And also go check out Fire and Errantry, which we've been talking about today. And so, Elizabeth Hand, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Elizabeth Hand for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Scott18885, who writes, Absolutely wonderful. I tend to drive a lot for work, and I'm just getting into podcasts. This was the first one I tried, and I love it. Great hosts who know their stuff and have given me a lot of new reading material to look into. So big thanks again to Scott18885 for that great review. 
Special thanks as well to Cowchimp, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.